This is Adam Lippy, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is one of the very first podcasts I recorded with Australian director Rolf Tahir. It was originally recorded in August of 2008, hence there's a reference to Tropic Thunder being current. Now, my equipment was quite primitive then. It was recorded on an analog tape recorder, and Rolf had called me from Australia. Now, it covers all of his films up to Dr. Plunk, but I specifically did not discuss his most famous film, Bad Boy Bubby, in great detail because I wanted to discuss things that you could not find by watching extra material on DVDs, and since Bad Boy Bubby has uh, a two-disc version in Australia, and there's a pretty good Blue Underground DVD in this country, it seemed unnecessary. So it jumps around a lot, starting with you know, how he started in the Australian film industry, dealing with Miramax and his film Epsilon, which later became Alien Visitor, and the fluky way that his first film, Tale of a Tiger, was made. Now, at the time, I'd only seen Alien Visitor in the Miramax version, but since then, and there's two films where it was relevant that the discussion sort of becomes anachronistic. One is Epsilon has now been released in a, a six-pack of Australian DVDs. Epsilon is now released in its original version, and Encounter at Ravensgate, which I was only able to see at the time on a very crop VHS, was finally released in its uh, original 235 ratio so it can be seen so those who are curious about the discussion points we have on that will be uh, happy now this podcast was up previously in several different forms though not edited very well and no intro and sort of cobbled together and you weren't really find it properly titled on iTunes so I have re-edited this completely now runs about 20 minutes shorter than it used to and it's a lot tighter obviously the sound isn't as good but it's very clear everything is understandable you can hear me repeating myself quite a bit and being sort of overexcited and trying to show off how smart I was with certain types of questions and jokes and all sorts of things but I've tried to cut that down in the editing so you get a sense of what Rawls feelings are on various subjects he's a terrific guy and uh, I hope that people will look into his films especially the never before available stuff like Dance Me to My Song Tale of a Tiger Encounter at Ravensgate and his original cut of Epsilon so please enjoy I guess I wanted to get into the Australian film industry around the time that you started making films, around the time of Tale of a Tiger. What was it like then? I mean, I understand that, you know, Roger Spottiswood was working and Fred Sheepsey and a, a number of other filmmakers, and some have crossed over but not quite, and, you know, eventually they started making mainstream American films. But at that point, like, was it very difficult to get financing, or was it... Oh, I think back in 1981, uh, which is like a couple of years before Tale of a Tiger, at about the time that I got out of film school, or six months, a year, a year or so later, there was tax legislation introduced that was quite generous, and that caused an explosion of activity in the Australian film industry. And, you know, that pulled back the generosity of it after a few years, and then it, it found a, a way still to work within the, the lesser ones. And, or so of a much higher output than has been the case before or since. So in some respects, it was easier than it has been at any other time. 
See, Americans have a very limited understanding of Australian film. And, for instance, the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, you know, no yep. or no release here. And, you know, while Pauline Kael in the 70s and early 80s, she championed him, it never really took off his early films that way. Yep. But what are, in terms of what you've seen and what inspired you, what were some Australian films that, that we should see or track down or that have never gotten the recognition that you hoped they would? I guess I don't think about it that way. I know the American market is a very different market to the Australian market in some respects. It's, it's similar, but in other respects it's quite dissimilar. There's a little corner of it that's matured a fair bit, but the mainstream American audiences, you know, they like American accents and that's it. And so, at best, what happens is that there are a few Australian films get released as, as art house films, and the occasional one breaks through like Crocodile Dundee. Mad Max. Which, of course, you know, broke through everywhere. And then if you do moderately good business, Muriel's Wedding, Adventures of Priscilla, Matt from Snowy River, you know, there's a few that have just, you know, have, have done modestly well by American standards. But the financing, I mean, the, 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 the scale of, of audience is so different and the, you know, the budgets that, that we make films for in Australia com compared to the mainstream American films, but even, even a small, you know, what might be in American terms considered to be insignificant success is a major success here. One doesn't expect, one is taught early on in the piece, expect nothing from America. Right. And, and if you get anything from America, then, hey, great, it's, it's a bonus. And so there are always going to be lots of films that are interesting to individual people that have just never seen a light of day in America. And some of them are obscure here in Australia as well, because, you know, not every film that we make here, in fact, most films that we make here don't resonate with Australian audiences either. Doesn't mean they're not interesting, you know. Like, there's a, there's a wonderfully kinetic, very low-budget film called Pure Shit, you know, which also was, I think it was released here as Pure S, because the, uh, the, the shit in the title was considered... Well, yeah, they, they do the same thing when the, with the Gregor Rabin's yeah, film. Yeah, um, yeah. It's an extraordinary film. It's not in any way a mainstream film. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, in my view, it's very interesting. But I don't think it's had very great effect here either mm -hmm. because, you know, it was really seen and, and, and so on. But look, in terms of, of, of myself, so look, every film I ever see is an influence, whether that be Australian or, or, or American or European or from anywhere else. And, you know... Look, I think One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was a, a film that influenced me more than many. Novacento, 1900, is another one. There's an Hungarian film called The Stud Farm, which I remember so clearly. It was just an extraordinary film. And, and there are a number of Australian films that I like you know, that, that have influence. Which one do you think would break through? Because I'm thinking of stuff like that I've seen on TV, Around the World in 80 Ways, which has very little notoriety here no, nobody knows about it and I, th I was thought it yeah. was charming and you know yeah, yeah slight but amusing and certainly worthy yeah. of more attention uh, I haven't seen it and so I can't comment because that's the other thing that happens is, is that I when I'm working on something and it used to be worse than it is now I would avoid seeing anything anything at all because it didn't matter what I saw it would cause me to become depressed because if it, if it was good, whether it be Australian or, or, or not, if it was good, 
than, you know. Even if it was outside of the genre you were working in at the time? Outside, in, it didn't matter what it was, because if the film was good, I would become depressed thinking, well, how are we ever going to compete with something like that? Okay? But if it was a bad film, and there's plenty of those around as well, I'd, I'd be thinking, oh my God, what is to stop us from becoming as bad as that? Right. And so I just learned very early that when I'm working on something, don't go and see anything, anything. In fact, I don't watch television. I haven't for, for, for decades at all anyway. But at, at those times, I would just simply not go and see films either. And because I'm working most of the time, my film viewing since I started making has been sporadic. And so I, sometimes I you know, watch intensely for a little while, but I'm usually working. Right. And so I miss out on so many films. I'll be gaps in my... my Filmmaking, my, my film viewing experience in the, in, in the last uh, 25 years. Before that, yeah, much better. I'd see many more things. But you know, I look, you know, I, I remember watching Picnic at Hanging Rock and being impressed with it in, and affected by it. And it got a modest release in America. You know, good, fine. You know, that was that was a breakthrough thing. You know, maybe they had expectations of more. Uh, well, kind of it's never going to be a big hit in America, though. It's too sort no. of vague for people. As a filmmaker, are you? The kind of person who, who thinks it's only important as long as people see what I you know what I'm the films I'm trying to get out whether they get the message or not I just want everyone to see them. No, that's not the way I think. The experience of making the first three films that I made and what happened to them in distribution, which you know are epic and long stories, but basically they led me to the conclusion that apart from mainstream American studio films which get a sort of awareness backing that allows them to perform on their own merits, okay? Everything else is in the lap of the gods, okay? So that, that uh, you can make a bad film and somehow lots of people will see it. You can make a good film and perhaps lots of people will see it. You can make a good film and nobody will see it. For, for often the most obscure and bizarre reasons, or you can make a bad film and nobody will see it. Okay, there is no correlation between the quality of the film and what happens to it in distribution. Okay, from that point, after those first three films, and once I came to that conclusion that there is no correlation between the film and what happens to it in distribution, I stopped thinking too much about that lots of people would have to get to see this film. Okay. I began to make films that satisfied me, that I thought gave a fair chance for the people who put up the money mm -hmm. to get some returns. And so in that sense, I try not to be completely self-indulgent. So those three, those three things. So one is you know, that, that, that I like the film. Two is that the investors got some possibility of some return. And the third thing is that the process of making it was good. Right. So that, you know, you spend a year or, or two years making a film, if the process is a fraught one, then you've wasted a year of your life. Right. Because, because making the film is you living your life. Right. Because it's about all you do at the time. And so I began to look after process to the exclusion of audience almost. Okay. Now, in a sense, from that point, I had more success than I had before, which is the great irony of it all. But 
not universally across the board at all. Some films performed well, some didn't, some, you know, but ultimately it didn't matter because they were at a relatively low budget because I wanted to make films I cared about and in order to make films I care about to have a chance of returning something to their investors, they have to be low budget. And the process of low budget is generally much, much, much better than the process of big budget in the sense that people don't angst about the money so much. You have more freedom. Uh, and so you have more freedom. And and you can you can look after process much more easily. You know, if there's 120 people on the crew, you can't look after process. If there's eight on the crew, you can. And so, you know, it's a long answer to your question about audiences. Yeah, sure, it's always better if more people see it because, you know, I care about the films and I think, you know, mostly they're worth seeing but not by everybody because there's going to be a whole lot of people who don't like it whatsoever and that's fine. And, and, and if, if it, you know, the more people who see it then the investors actually do get a bit of a return on their investment and that's a good thing because then they'll, they'll come back again. But for me, it's not the thing that drives it at all. And look, there's a film I made called Epsilon mm-hmm. which ultimately, through the most extraordinary sequence of events was dead on arrival. Okay, it never ever had a chance to find an audience. No chance. Now, I well, you should and, and see, what you should see is the back cover of the DVD. It's the most misleading thing you'll ever see. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I understand. You know, and, you know, the Miramax became involved. It, it, it was a one-way. It was a very interesting learning experience, and, and there were some very good people at Miramax that I, I worked with on it. You know, and, and, and I don't resent the experience. Although, you know, I, I, I could say a few things. I tell you now. Um, I, I've, but, I met I met Harvey Weinstein a number of times, so you don't have to say. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> um, but but, but uh, what I mean to say about it is, it's a film I treasure. Mm-hmm. Because the process of it was so extraordinary, the making of it was so incredible that, you know, I, I just am not, I'm not bitter or, or anything about what happened to that film. Well, when he asked you to cut but, to 10 minutes out of the film, do you wish he'd not said that? Now you put, you put them back in and it, while it would have been a failure anyway, at least it would have been your failure? No, no, no. It's, look, the, 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 there are two versions of the film, mm-hmm. and that's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. They, they play quite differently. They really play quite differently as films, even though the content is, is extremely similar. Which one is best? No, they're different. They're two different films. The original version is tougher. And, and in that sense, what I did to the film as a consequence of working with Miramax people achieved what we set out to do. Okay, in that sense, and, and uh, my sense of it is, look, you know American audience, you Miramax, you know American audiences much better than I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, what is it that you want to do? Okay, and it was my, they were great, you know, Tony Safford was, was, was uh, at Miramax at the time. And it was a good, constructive working relationship. Okay, it took the film into a different area, it became a different film. But it didn't make any difference because the decision had been made higher up that this film was dead. Right. And, and so once that decision's been made up higher up, there's nothing you can do that's going to bring it back to life. Right. So, and so that's fine. I don't have a problem with any of that because, you know, it was a, an extraordinary process that, that was worth, that was a year 
of life worth living, but the, the shoot was nearly a year long. Really, that was a year long, even though you only had the two characters in the you know, wilderness? And... Yeah. Oh, wow. The first ten minutes of that film, uh-huh. just the first ten minutes, uh-huh. is 64 shooting days. Is it because of lack of money and you, you, you could only shoot at certain no. times, or because no. it was so complicated? No, no. It's just so complex, it's stuff that's never been done by anyone ever, before or since. It's the most complex thing you can possibly imagine. And, and what was so interesting about that film is that it became an anachronism while we were making it. Mm-hmm. I mean, to this day when people see it, which is infrequently, they cannot believe that there is not a single digital effect in it. Right. The lab, when they screened the rushes, said, it is impossible. What you are doing is impossible. How are you doing this? This is incredible. I mean, look, you know, that's get quite complicated, but what the sort of things that we did, you know, multiple exposures, you know, four layers of exposure on one piece of film, mm-hmm. all having to be perfectly timed so that the four layers would fit perfectly on top of each other, but each of them shot at a different frame rate from between normal 24 frames a second up to one frame every 30 seconds. And so what a 40-second shot would take eight hours to put one layer on. Right. Now, to construct a shot like that is maybe three days of work. If it doesn't work and you have to go for a take two, it's another three days. So, you so, know. so now you now you truly respect what Nick Park and Ardman do, probably. No, it's a different thing. Well, yeah, but in terms of the pain, they, they control the. Yeah. yeah, they they control. They don't have to do take twos. Right. Whereas, okay, there's there's a thing called there's a, there's an area when she lands mm-hmm. and it goes around and 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 she looks around and goes from day to night to day to night to day to night sort of thing. Okay, well, that's a, it, it looks like a shot. Right. Okay, now, that was five shooting days, but we had to do five takes right. before it worked. And so that's 25 shooting days. Bang. Just for that one, effectively one shot. <laughs> that, that is striking, because in terms of, you said that, you know, making the film, I guess, more accessible, what I noticed when watching it is there's, you know, she shows up and obviously she'd be naked, but there's these really distracting sort of censorship moments where she's suddenly wearing clothes, and I wasn't watching it for the nudity. I mean, it's a film clearly about the environment. And, but I was, I was struck by, you know, why, why are they bothering to cover her up when the shot wouldn't even reveal anything just for some sort of rating, American rating purpose? Did, did, were, Look, I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen the American DVD. I don't know what they've done. Oh, well, I mean, the rating is the same as it was. What I'm saying is when she first shows up, she's got clothing on, like, just in certain shots, just to cover up her breasts. And it's the kind of thing where it's more distracting that they did that. Because, well, who you know, did, what I can't answer is who did what. Right. Because in, in, it, it depends what they've cut and how they've cut it for the DVD. Okay, because in, in the film, I knew, as we were doing it, you know, she, I can't have her running around without clothes the whole time. Right, right, right. That, that, that's not going to work. And so there is, there is a progression in the film where quite normally, naturally, in a sense, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it, I think it looks a long time ago, but I think it's, he says to her, look, I think you better put a shirt on. 
Oh, but it's even it's even before that is what's so distracting. There's nude shots of her after they have these like covering her up with cloth somehow. That is so distracting. But that's okay. why I well, was that, I was that, wondering if that, they, they added that or you added that or where. Oh, they added that. They okay. added that for sure. For sure, that would sound completely stupid to me. But it is. It is very strange. In terms of uh, Tale of a Tiger, I don't know how you would get a film like that finance if it's your first film and you're making basically a movie about a kid who wants to build an airplane. How do you get that financed? Yeah. Well, they're relatively straightforward in the sense that there's dirt of good children's films. Mm-hmm. Okay? Children's films, uh, they earn over a very long period of time. Okay, so so as a commercial bet, you know, they're not going to set the world on fire, mm-hmm. but they will be solid earners for a substantial period of time, much longer than the average film. And so the next thing is, what's the budget? You know? Right. There's some product placement in there. Was that accidental or was that part of covering the budget? No, uh, no, there's no product placement as such in, in that film. What I was noticing is that there's a few products, and I thought, well, maybe this would be a perfectly reasonable way to finance the film, but it's just a coincidence of cornflakes, and I saw a few other things, but it, I guess it's just a coincidence. Um, yeah, yeah, no, certainly no product placement in that film, that's for sure. Uh, no, no, the budget, look, again, the budget's low, mm-hmm. um, and in it, it was financed in those heady days of, of tax concessions, and, and the story of its financing was that on the last day of the financial year, the company I was working with, in a way, it was an odd relationship, had gone broke, and we were to meet to divide up the properties, and because it was going to go into liquidation, I came in first, and there was one phone line left, everything else had been cut off through non-payment of bills. A call came through when I was in, at nine o'clock, saying, do you have anything between three and six hundred thousand dollars, and I said, "Yes, we do. We'll get back to you." Okay. The other two guys came in. I said, "What have we got?" And uh, we had a documentary about restoring a Tiger Moth aeroplane. That was what the documentary was, and so we decided that was it. By quarter to five that day, there was four hundred and forty thousand dollars in the bank. And by quarter to midnight, the contracts were signed. This was in order so that the person with the $440,000 could get a tax deduction. Right. Uh, a substantial one, like 150% or something like that. Okay, then we had to fulfill certain conditions in order to be able to access that money. And it was my idea to turn the documentary into a feature film, a children's feature film, because that way we could fulfill those conditions a bit more easily. And that was to provide a certain level of guaranteed return. So that's how, you know, it's not, not every film was financed that way, but that's how that got financed. Oh, but it's, yeah, I've heard many stories in, in Canada and Germany where they've had to, that same yeah. sort of thing happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the film itself, what seemed to be the, the element that stood out while a little distracting also sort of is one of the, you know, it doesn't, it's dated but in a good way, which was the score, which sounded sort of like, like, Giorgio Moroder, I hate to say it, but... but no, I don't, I don't, yeah. yeah, look, you know, two young musicians that I'd, I'd, I'd been at film school with, and it was their first score. Okay. You know, I remember they'd done short films, mm-hmm. but, 
you know, nature of the budget and who you work with and so on. No, I'm not complaining uh, about it. It was just, it, it, was, it was a synth score, and I was not expecting that with a kid's film at all. I was like, yeah. yeah. No, it's just purely budgetary consideration. Yeah. When, 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 okay, there was 440000 Australian dollars, but the actual amount of money to make the film with, once all the conditions were satisfied, there was $190,000. Right. So for $190,000 to make a film with airplanes flying and all that sort of stuff, you know, something's got to give. <laughs> so you have a synth score, end of story. In your personal life, have you ever deterred a large gang with flour? No. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. That seems that seemed a, a good opportunity to take it from your life. Um, now, this is a, being in your first feature. What I, you know, I started. I looked for patterns, and what I noticed right away in one, you know, in each film, maybe the about five or six of the first eight or nine, is that you're very interested in process. And what I mean by that is something like in Campbell Scott's Big Night at the end, they just you just watch them make an, an egg, an omelet in, in the frying pan. And you seem to be very focused on showing the very slow details of, of think, something being built. And that's always fascinating to watch. And most filmmakers don't have the patience. They think nobody wants to sit through this. Now, uh, where did your patience for, you know, your willingness to just show us each step very slowly and, you know, how this person works and how this is constructed? Because, you know, usually it'd be like an 18-style montage, but you don't even bother with that. Yeah, I, I guess it is. It depends on, on, on the film and the world we're entering and what's interesting and what's interesting to me. And I guess what, you know, by extension, what is interesting to some other people because you know not everybody likes that sort of stuff but hey what the hell works in the film for me yeah look I'm interested in the, in the way things work and, and I guess you know in the, in the sense that, that you know as I say every film I've ever watched is an influence you know when I have seen that sort of thing about stuff that interests me I found it particularly interesting and and look it's, it, it part of it is is you know what is cinema Cinema is, at least in part, it's, it takes us into a world that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, in that world that we don't know, that we experience for the first time or whatever, you know, there are processes that, that we haven't seen before and, and, and that, are, that are part of that world and that it's actually good to show that and to, to, to allow the audience to feel that and to enter that different world and come out of it knowing a little bit more, knowing something a little bit different. I mean, I was struck while watching it. Is The immediate thought was, wow, you know, you captured... Do you ever see To Live and Die in L.A. by William Friedkin? No, I haven't. Oh, well, there's this amazing scene where Willem, Willem Dafoe is playing a counterfeiter, and he basically shows you how to counterfeit American money. And, oh, yes. And it's, 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 so, it's so accurate that apparently the FBI was chasing them around, which is funny. <laughs> Because they didn't, they wanted them to change stuff because it, you know, it was it was like a lesson how to much. do it. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I, I kept thinking of that because that is a fascinating sequence in the middle of sort of an action thriller that yep. draws you in and you never leave it because you're like, well, this is really authentic, and that's really what you get from watching your films is that you really know your subject matter as opposed to just rushing through the story to the end. Now, you were absolutely right about Encounter at Ravensgate, because the print I watched was so bad that I could barely pay attention. Um, It seemed like a third-generation VHS, very badly cropped, very hard to look at, very hard to hear. And since what I noticed is your focus on sound, which, you know, I guess is even more evident in that headphone track you did for Bad Boy Bubby, which we didn't get in the U.S., but is on the Australian DVD. 
but the sound is there, there's like there's always some sort of amplification that you're using uh, in Tale of a Tiger I kept noticing that it's very over exaggerated and dingo and and I, where did you and in Counter Rimsgate then the few, t- few times I can actually hear what was going on the, the separation was very clear like uh, where did that come from and you know is that is that your, one of your key things that you like to focus on Look, sound, you know, which includes music, is for me 60% of the emotional content of a film. You know, you can you can do so much with it. And in fact, it was it was Ravensgate that taught me a great deal about it. Okay, anything that happens in in Tale of a Tiger is by accident. Okay. Okay. Because I didn't even know there was such a thing as a sound editor when right. we did that, and we sort of got towards the end of the cut, and the editor said, "Look, I think we need a sound editor." Oh, oh gee, we haven't got any money. You know, oh, no, well, we've got to have one. And so we got one in for two weeks. And in the end, I had to pay out of my own pocket for him to stay a third week because the producer said, no, what's a sound editor? We don't need sound editor. This bullshit. And, and he taught me a great deal. You know, we suddenly I learned stuff from this bloke. But, you know, to have a three-week sound edit on a feature film, one person, it's unthinkable now. And so whatever happens in, in, in Tale of a Tiger in terms of sound is, is largely accidental in a way. It was on Raven's Gate, which was a proper Dolby soundtrack and where we did have money for a proper mix and sound editor and blah, 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 that, that I learned a lot. And, and you know, it, it staggered me that, that most of the stereo stuff that, you know, at the time, that most of the stereo stuff that went into it was not stereo at all. And I said, well, why not? Well, they couldn't answer the question. It's just easier not to. You just assign it to this track and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, I want stereo. I want proper stereo. I want to okay, go, well, what is proper stereo? And then, you you know, you go on a voyage of, on a voyage of discovery about sound. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Ravensgate had within it scripted a lot of stuff to do with sound. You know, the, the fact that the cop was deaf. Right. So we had a hearing aid. Um, other stuff, you know, because of the, 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 the nature of the subject matter, you could do a great deal with sound. And we did. And we did as much as we could. And, you know, it's uh, where if you see a, a proper print in a proper Dolby Studio cinema, it's, it's, it's a great soundtrack. It's right. really terrific. I wish it had gotten a wider release so we could at least experience it in some way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you see, that was part of the process. <laughs> I did. I guess this is sort of for me this next question, which was in Ravensgate. There's this fascinating shot where the audio tape is moving by itself. How did you do that exactly? How did we do that? If you can remember, or if you're willing to reveal it, because you, you know I about where the, the yeah yeah yeah. How did we do that? In a very simple way, we did some pretty simple special effects on that that were highly effective, like the lightning. In disguised a car drives past where you had a bicycle wheel that was in and a lamp mm-hmm. and a half mirror that, that oh look it was crude but incredibly effective like the way they used to do them in the old days. I think what we had was a like a motorbike accelerator cable. Like yeah, not accelerator cable, like speedo cable. That was attached to the bottom of it and that sort of went out of out of sight mm-hmm. and you could wind the other end of it and it was attached to the bottom of the cassette. Something like that. It's as crude as that. Okay. In Dingo, there's a number of things that, that I noticed. First is that you're, the, even the um, foreign DVD, the Australian DVD, I think, is, is cropped to 185 and it's very distracting and you should fire whoever made that decision. 
But when it, one, has, one has no control. No, I know, I know. I've talked to uh, filmmakers as um, different from you as Uwe Boll about that very thing. There's sort of a heavy sense of hallucination in the first three films that you made, where it's like a mix of domestic drama with magical realism. Is there a place where that came from, where you felt like doing that, if that makes sense? No, look, I don't think about those things, you know. Okay, Tale of a Tiger was a, in a sense, was a, was structured as a consequence of the, the financing, and with the financing came a wreck of an old tiger moth, you know, with the, 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 the that's the, okay. And so then you had to use that in some way, and then you work out how to use it in some way, and it became what it became, okay? How do you, how do you, you know, how do you make a feature film when your biggest asset is a wreck of a tiger moth, you know? <laughs> like, Ravensgate was originally somebody else's script, who, and they asked me to, to direct it, because I was, at that stage, it was well before, it, it started off well before Tale of the Tiger, but it took seven years ultimately to get financed. And, you know, nobody just out of film school gets asked to direct a feature. Right. So you say, yes, whatever it is, right. you know, at that stage. And so, okay, yes, then in the end I did numbers of drafts and there was another writer came in on it. We worked together and he did some drafts on his own. Okay, it had a whole process then after that. But, you know, it chose me rather than me chose it. And Dingo is really the only film that I've done where I've had nothing to do with the script. Oh, okay, so it was it a was, coincidence. It, it, was, it was Mark Rosenberg's script, mm-hmm. and we had worked together on Raven's Gate, and he asked me to do Dingo, and I loved the script. Mm-hmm. And so I said, ultimately said yes. The, there was a weird casting choice. So Which bit of casting is, is bizarre? Okay, the, what's, what's bizarre is that one kid, the, the kid who's watching the airplane at the beginning... Uh, yeah doesn't look much like Colin Friels, but the other kid looks exactly like Colin Friels, but you you cast him as the, the friend. Okay. Yeah. I would, I would argue that the other kid, I would argue that the other kid looks more like Joe Petrucci mm-hmm. than he looks like Colin Friels, although he may in fact look more like Colin Friels than the, than the kid who's, who's playing, whatever. But, you know, that, look, it's, it's type in a sense. He's sort of... You know, has the dark features as as Joe Petrucci has the dark features, and you know that's who we grew grew into. Look, it could it. I guess it's what you perceive at the time. Right, I mean, it's, it's semantics. I mean, it's something that because the, 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 you know, in a sense, yes, we could have reversed the casting and dyed his hair, and it might have worked better. You know, it just might very well have worked better. It was just a confusion but, point for me because Colin Friels is in the first shot, and then when you showed this stuff with the kids, I assumed that the other kid was Colin Friels, and then it was the other way around. So there was this moment yeah, where I yeah, was out of it a little yeah, bit. Yes, just going to say, you get that sort of thing mm-hmm. quite commonly where somebody sees a particular thing quite differently than most people, mm-hmm. and there are others who do see it the same way. And it's the sort of thing that you can't actually prevent right. in filmmaking because the connotations that a particular face give you, individual to you, right. and the connotations that a particular face you know, give me are individual to me. And sometimes what that happens is, is it causes like what to maybe 10% of the audience. It's a completely bizarre casting choice, but to 90% of the audience it's fine. Right. Okay. Um, Miles Davis, mm-hmm. relatively straightforward. He was asking, he said yes. <laughs> okay. 
I, I'm watching and I'm like, how did they get him? I mean, he's not an actor. He's, you know, he, he has such gravitas and, and you're like, you know, he, he has such presence. He's, you know, he's playing a character, but not really. And, you know, yeah, yeah. it was, it was, I was amazed that you were able to get that. Um, it was an extraordinary experience working with Miles. And, and, and apparently it was in the sense that his manager said never. In, in, in eight years that I've been working with him, have I seen him this cooperative? And he just didn't want it to end. He wanted, to, wanted the whole shit to keep going. As a kid, did you play to a lot of empty concert halls? Because that seems to be a motif in your work in terms of there's almost... <laughs> <laughs> Look, there is a scene in Bad Boy, Bobby. That's what I was thinking of, Ann and Dingo. That is... Yeah. That, no, I think that's a different... No, that, the Dingo one is a rehearsal. Right. First one is a rehearsal, and so of course it's going to be empty. And the second one is that you know it's just tiny town, right. and the entire population is there. But no, the scene in, in, in Bad Boy Bobby is in fact based on personal experience. Yes. Because I get getting these flashbacks. You may not be aware of this. Uh, there was a series called The Comic Strip out of England, um, right. and they had a sketch called Bad News. It was with Rick Mayall and all the people who ended up in uh, The Young Ones. All right. And the the bad news was like pre-Spinal Tap, and it's a lot of the same stuff, and they end up going to the show, and, and you almost shot it the exact same way as they did in the where, where nobody's there. Right. And it was almost, and I was, I had a huge sense of deja vu. I'm like, wow, he must have seen that too, because, but if it was based on personal experience, it, you know. When, when, when was that done? That is 83. 83, good God. And they did a, they did a follow-up in 88. Right. Okay. Well, I think I wrote the scene in probably 81. So you, you, you win. You, you win the influence game, I guess. Um, well, it, it's just based on personal experience. No, no, I know, I know. Just I, was in, I was in a band and, and uh, you know, <laughs> we had a night where uh, nobody turned up and the one person who did uh, said, oh. <laughs> now, there's, there's a scene in the quiet room that interests me because it has a totally different meaning in the U.S. when... She picks up the dolls, and she picks up one of the black dolls, if that makes sense. Yeah. In the U.S., yeah. that refers to the study that was done where the separate but equal stuff. I don't know if you know any idea what I'm talking about. No. Okay. Uh, basically, it was about uh, black people's low self-esteem in the U.S. during the 1560s. And so All right. what, what would happen is that a white kid would pick a white doll, and then a black kid would also pick a white doll. Because he didn't yep. want, because he, he's like, well, I don't want my ideal is not this; it's the white doll. Yes, yes, yes. So I didn't know, but if, I guess there is no correlation if you weren't aware of it. So it's just, it's just not a coincidence. No, it's 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 that you know young girls, you know, who are into Barbies, and many of them are or were, you know, by then, you know, there's like a mixture of mixture of uh, race of dolls available. Right. And they usually end up with a mixture. And certainly in Australia, there's, there's, there's very little you know, differentiation between them. They're just. Did you shoot the uh, stuff of when she's a three-year-old? Was that shot on video? Because it has a very video look yes. on the DVD, but I assume... Yes. That, yeah, okay. Because it, it has that. It was shot on video and then kinnied, partly to give it a completely different look. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly has that. And the music was interesting, and I know it's the same composer you've worked with a number of times, but I kept thinking of the composer Michael Nyman while watching it. All right. It has that that tone and the, the rhythm of Michael. Was that intentional or just a coincidence or what? Uh, what? 
No, it's, it's not the way that he and I work together. We don't sort of say, look, let's try Michael Nyman here. It's not how, how it goes, you know. We talk about, sometimes we talk a lot, sometimes we talk a little, because, I, you know, apart from Dingo, I think I've worked with Graham Tarter from everything I've done. Right. And in the first couple, he was in partnership with, with a guy called Steve Arnold, who's credited in, in, in Ravensgate as Roman Cronin. Right. Because he, he was a cinematographer and he was getting too much attention for his music. But, but after that, it was, it was Graham by himself. And, and, you know, we discuss feels, but not through other composers in particular at all. And, and there's usually no referencing directly, like, have a listen to this bit of this person. We don't do it that way. We know each other well enough, and he knows me well enough in particular, and he knows the way I think about emotion and uh, well enough that, that we don't need to go about it that way and so there is to my knowledge no direct reference to Michael Nyman you know whether it, it's head there was some I don't know well it was I thought it was funny because in my email to you I said that you I thought of you because of your ability to go from genre to genre all over the place was that you were very much like an Australian version of Michael Winterbottom and then I was watching The Quiet Room and Winterbottom uses Nyman all the time and so all right, I, okay. I thought wow that you know I hope it was probably not intentional but it's funny to my shame, I have not seen enough Michael Winterbottom films. Well, he does one great, one unwatchable. I mean, it's on and off, and you never know which is going to be which. Um, yeah. Now, uh, what's distinctive about your films is that you use real people that are not so glamorous. I was assuming that was intentional and not a limit of casting. Uh, people don't look like movie yeah. stars, and that's refreshing, honestly. Look, look, uh, there's a number of, number of issues. One is low budget. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and therefore you know you can't afford the stars. Mm -hmm. Another is authenticity, mm -hmm. and and another is is in the nature that the film is received. That you know if I'm taking people into a completely different world, we're largely better off not having a star in it because a star reminds us of a different world. Right. You know of all the different worlds that that star has been in. But look, you know. I used to think that I was not remotely interested in working with, with star actors until, in a sense, you know, because, you know, the initial few times I worked with people who were, you know, getting themselves a bit known, all was not good. Mm -hmm. But then when I worked on Old Man Who Read Love Stories with Dreyfus and Hugo Weaving and Timothy Spall, they were such wonderful people to work with. That, that, you know, I'm open to work with whoever now, you know, it doesn't matter. It's whoever's right for the role, whoever's right for the, you know, for the casting, for the, for the budget, who's willing to do it, you know. So, a lot of your I've changed. Okay. Yep. Well, yeah, working with Dreyfus, I guess it would do that. A lot of your films have this very small feel to it where if, if it was someone trying to break into the business, it would be a short film. You'd have made a 20-minute version of the same thing. Now, have you ever had, do, do any of these films ever start as a short, and then no. you decide, oh, well, let's, let's make it a feature, because we can sell no, it easier? not at all. Okay. Not at all. No. In Epsilon, or Alien Visitor, or whatever you want to call it, there was a number of things I thought of, one of which was, was this ever envisioned as a play, because it has that very stagey feel to no, it. No, no. Oh, okay. The, 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 the bizarre thing about Epsilon is that for quite some time, 
until we got control over the equipment about eight or nine months into the shoot was a, it, the, the script had to be written as we went mm -hmm. because I would not know where we were shooting next because that depended on where this equipment was. Right. And so the reason why there is some stuff in America mm -hmm. is because the equipment went to America. Right. And so, you know, it was going to be being used in New Mexico at the very large array of telescopes. Okay. So we went to New Mexico to where the very large array is and waited for the equipment to arrive and I wrote the scene that we were going to shoot there. But then it turned out, no, 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 it's not going to be there, it's going to uh, some other purpose, Utah somewhere. And so in the end we, we, we had to meet in, in Las Vegas. So I thought, oh, well, fuck, I better write a scene for here because this is where the equipment's going to be. And that's, you know, we would use it. And so that's why Las Vegas is in there. And so the script had to develop organically to where we were going to be until ultimately, as I say, you know, seven or eight months in pursuit, we got control of the equipment and then we, I could write it to its end and decide where to shoot. But prior to that, it was not, not the case. What, it was what, never envisaged as anything except the film that we were making as we were making it, in a way. Right. There were two things that came to mind while watching it, and I know I have this thing where I compare films, but you know that's how your mind works. The first was called uh, a film called Mind Walk. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's basically three people walking around. It's made by Frank Capra's son and with Sam Watterson and a few other people, and they just walk around and have these very deep philosophical conversations. It's like my dinner with Andre, except they're walking around. Um, okay. And I kept thinking of it because it was, it was the same kind of feel to it. Yep. And the other thing that came to mind was Coy and Escati, but it, if it had words. And I didn't know if that was, because that has, it was a bigger film, more, you know, more notoriety to it. Was that ever, was that an influence in terms of the photography well, or the... Seen, I'd seen Kranitskarty, but it was not a direct influence. Basically what happened was that I saw some footage here in Adelaide shot by this extraordinary sort of motion control system that had been devised here mm -hmm. and, 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 and constructed and built with some Arab money and, and it was this amazing footage, the likes of which I'd never seen before and, you know, in the end, you know, I thought, okay, well, there's, there's a go, this is interesting now. So then the film was planned in, in some way, in as best it could, and then just before we started shooting, I saw Baraka. Mm, okay. Now, Baraka is made with similar equipment. Right, and it's the cinematographer, okay. right. And, and, and it, uh, so I suddenly, I went, wow, you know, here it all is. And they shot, and, you know, their budget was four, five, ten times what we have. How come, you know, okay, it's one of those things. But then I realized, you know, no, what we're doing is different. Right. We're making a feature film using the same sort of equipment, and we can't be using it in different ways, but in fact in ways that nobody or ever else has, which is in fact what happened. You know, and never since. <laughs> um, Part of why I thought of Coin Escanti is because that is a, a heavy message movie about the evils of industrialization, and your films have progressed to being about, you know, please protect the environment, stop ruining the environment. And so I thought, well, you know, it's comparable, but I wasn't yeah. sure. Oh, uh, look, you know, I mean, insofar as that, that, that 
you know, any film I've ever seen has been an influence. That's right. You know, and only in, in, in as much as that. But no, Crown Scotty was not a direct influence in any way, shape or way. It was years earlier that I'd seen it, you know, and this one developed so organically out of its own situation. Because the the that first footage that I saw that triggered the wanting to make this film was, you know, it was a star shot. It was a tracking real-time star shot, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the likes of which I'd never seen before. And it just spoke to me of this sort of, uh, I don't know, it was like a yearning for the earth, you know. And that's sort of how it, it developed into the direction that, that we took it into. With Dance Me To My Song, um, a number of things came to mind, but... I was blown away by how you know willing you were to just it's so direct and most of the time when you see a film about someone with disabilities the filmmakers feel a need to let up at some point and say oh yep. so it's to let you you know to let you in and this doesn't really do that at all except maybe the end but I, I thought it was um, very brave to do that because you know you I kept thinking of uh, Proof, the Australian film, where, you know, yep. Hugo Weaving is very unpleasant in the movie, and there's no, you know, oh my God, he's blind, and, you know, what a horrible, you know, feeling that must be. It's very much, this guy's an ass, and he's going he's gonna to take his photos, and he, want, he gets what he wants. And this, this woman, not well, not an ass, but, you know, it's very direct, and she, she deals with what she has. Yep. Yes, that's, look, it's, it's a function of who Heather Rose was. Mm -hmm. And, and what she wanted, and what she wanted out of the film. It just didn't seem right to sentimentalize it. You know, uh, it's, it's too easy to do, and it's not so interesting. It's, it's like the music on, on that was, with regard to what you're talking about, was the most difficult thing of all, because you, you put you know, some piano stuff over Heather Rose, over an image of Heather Rose, and it makes people cry. Right. Or you put some violin stuff over it, you know, it makes people cry. And, and the biggest task in the music was to make sure it didn't sentimentalize it. We spent six weeks just finding that sort of harpy sound mm -hmm. that gave enough, but not too much. How did you direct Heather? Did you just say, does she know what she was doing? I mean, I know it, you know, you credit her with directing the film, but do you just say, okay, you know where the script is going, I, I directed it. I credited, you know, I credited as a film by Heather Rose. But, but I mean, how, how do you? I mean, because she she doesn't have as much control over her body, it may be difficult correct. To, to direct yeah. someone during that period. I don't know how you how how do you you just have to be patient? Do you, how does it work? Yeah, you have to be very patient. We threw the schedule out the window after the first day mm -hmm. because okay, schedules don't work in the same way. She had a fierce desire. To, to do it right, mm -hmm. and, and it, look, it's, it's an interesting thing. She's never been nominated for any sort of acting performance in it, mm -hmm. because, you know, in a sense, because it's, you know, but what, what people don't realize is that, in fact, it's one of the great acting performances of all time, mm -hmm. because the way that her affliction worked is the harder she tries to do something, the more the wires in the brain get crossed, and the less likely it is that she's able to do it. And so she has to transcend that, you know. So each thing where she had to do a particular thing was astonishingly difficult for her. But she managed to do it because she was so fiercely committed to doing it. Now, in terms of how to direct, 
much the same as another actor, okay, but a lot slower because the response you get from the actor takes a great deal of time because she's got to painstakingly type it all in. It, you just build a relationship between yourself and the actor and, and you work with them, you know, it's, uh, yeah. It, I mean, the thing is that, that's relevant, you may, I don't know if it's come out in Australia, there's a very popular film right now called Tropic Thunder, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's I mean, just come out, I believe, just this week, I think. There's a very famous scene, and it's actually fairly clever, where Robert Downey is trying to explain to Ben Stiller about his film called Simple Jack, in which he quote-unquote played a retard, and why it was unsuccessful, and Downey explains that's because you don't go full retard, meaning you have to let the audience in, and I think that it, it would be, a, I, I was amazed that, and I'm not trying to be crude by, you know, calling it full retard, but I thought, but I was, I couldn't help but think of it because it, the reason that, that, that people, you know, need to back up to get more, back away to get more acclaim is because it makes people uncomfortable and they don't, they don't know how to, to deal with it. And the only way to deal with it is to sentimentalize it. Um, yeah. And, and in that sense, you know, we had no expectations for Dance Me To My Song to be a big hit anywhere in the world. Right. Okay. And, and it wasn't. However, it, it was well, released here well, more than 10 years ago. Of all the films that I've done, we still get more inquiries after it than anything else from all over the world. It spreads, it goes into educational institutions, it's got this extraordinary life uh, way, way, way beyond its time. And I think it's a big shame that really it had no release whatsoever here. Like, you cannot find it at all. But, look, you know, people find it, and as I say, it goes into, you know, like America, it's one, you know, a lot of people will have seen it now because, you know, over the years we've sent so many, you know, Beaters and this for that educational institution, or you know, somebody who has a uh, some teacher who's got an nah, okay, send it, send it, VHS. We get, you know, we get still even now three, four, five a week. Quick question, but, just for just for me, because yep. I, I uh, because the you know sometimes you don't get everything with the accents being thick, and there was something that I laughed out loud for probably a whole minute. I had to pause the movie, but I may have misunderstood what was being said. When the caretaker has sex in her bed with her boyfriend, the first boyfriend, she yep. says, you can, you know, she kept writing, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. And then she says, all right, you can watch. And then I swear she said, but no talking during the fellatio. Or did I mishear that? Um, you would have misheard it. Um... But I, I don't recall what it was that she said. Okay. Well, yeah, I've been recommending your movie just for that line alone, so. <laughs> so. I'm like, wow, that was a totally uncharacteristic and very funny. Um, uh, in terms of the old man who read love stories, did did you have any uh, Herzog moments in the uh, jungle? Like start. Um. Any Herzog moments in the jungle? You know, like uh, Burned Dreams, where he's talking about like how evil and awful the jungle is, and how it controls your life, and all that stuff. No, not in that sense. Right. Others probably half the French crew did. Right. Uh, but no, I liked the jungle. When I was in the jungle, that I was generally just in shorts and bare feet. I, you know, when I was uh, five and six, or six and seven, or something, I lived in Central Sumatra. Mm-hmm. And so as a, as a kid, 
I, uh, I was in the jungle a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like it, I enjoy it, I, I get on well with it, and I don't really have a problem. Was the structure, I mean, I, I imagine it was written that way in the book, but, you know, to get that across in a film is pretty hard with the flashbacks and the flashbacks. Was it written that way in the script, or were those later editing yeah. choices? No, 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 no. It, it was certainly written in the script. You know, my challenge there was how to capture you know, the book in the best possible way and the drifting off into memory. And so the shooting is very particular in order to have those seamless transitions into 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 his memory. So, for example, when they start to walk off into the jungle and he drifts off and, it, and the shot in, in the one shot, it becomes him as a younger man tracking through the jungle with, with Nushino. It's very particularly shot in order to be able to transition seamlessly in the way that that shot does. And you have to know exactly what you're doing at the time of shooting because the precision required is absolute, otherwise it's never going to work. And so, it, no, it was, it was uh, precisely structured in the script. Now, I know that one seemed to suffer the most in terms of distribution issues, I'm assuming because of the co-financing from various countries. Is that, does that one really disappoint you, that that never really got showing you know, much of anywhere in the world? I'm, uh, <laughs> I was beyond being able to be surprised. There were a sequence of events which, you know, did to it what happened to it. It's unfortunate for the people who put in the money, although not for all of them, because some of them made a profit out of it, even before the, you know, the cameras rolled. Uh, it's the way of the world and financing structures and films. The thing was, it was a an awful... Okay, the shoot itself, the working with the actors was great. You know, I loved working with the material, with the script. You know, the many things I, I, about it that I liked, but the, the process was awful mm. in other regards, in particular post-production, where the main financier and the main producer, who are both very old, somehow forgot that this was the script that we were shooting and went back in their minds to an ancient old script, which was a nasty piece of work, and wanted that out of what we'd shot. And so from that point on, the film was doomed, and I knew it. Do you ever want to quit out of, you know, protest, or no? No, 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 you just, you do the best you can to preserve the integrity of what's there, and I think we did that rather successfully, but it was such a bitter process that at the end of it, none of us, when I say none of us, I mean the people who were left back here in Australia trying to finish the damn thing, and it took, was over a year in post-production because of the, the raging arguments and fights and nasty stuff that happened, and it was just awful. None of us liked the film anymore, in a sense, whereas it was so difficult, it was such, it left such a, and I just didn't want to make any more films ever again in my life. And the tracker came along at a time when I thought, okay, well, I will try this, but if this doesn't work, that's the end. When they moved it to tracker, because the tracker was, in a sense, meant to be the opposite. Because it was, I had control over the, all the issues, and it was a small shoot, and it was a modest, you know, it was like a completely different sort of film to make. Now, if that hadn't worked, I would have given up making films. Luckily, it did work. It was a great experience. But with all many red love stories, you know, it, it got for all sorts of reasons in, in different places. It just got buried. You know, 
figures in big budget movies from now on? Since he's been Do I take credit for, for, for which? For uh, the fact that Timothy Spall's been making good money uh, playing greasy authority figures ever since? No, I take no credit for anything like that. I mean, Timothy Spall is a wonderful actor, mm-hmm. and he's wonderful to work with, and I'd work with him again at the top of a hat. No, 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 it wasn't an insult. It was that he seemed... No, no, I know that. I know people. that. sort of musical transitions with the paintings but uh, uh, much like Dance Me to My Song there was that theme where someone is so angry that they project they, they project what the, onto a blank slate kind of like being there or something like that where the less reaction they get from the person in this case the sort of violent guy and, and, and they Dance Me to My Song the caretaker is projecting all the stuff that's not that's just her own neuroses and in his case, you know, abusing the tracker over and over and over, while he just smiles and says, yes, boss, is that something you wanted to get across, that, that kind of feeling? The relationship between the tracker and, and the fanatic mm-hmm. is, in some ways, you know, representative of, of many such relationships in those times. There, was a, the, there were diaries that I read. There was a guy called Captain Wiltshire who was reputed by his own hand to have shot between two and four thousand Aboriginals around the turn of, of the century. You know, uh, he was he was you know given the task of clearing the centre. Now, you know, he would speak in quite what is for us today quite contradictory ways. Quite affection for black people, but at the same time, you know, shot the hell out of them, and happily so. So, you know, that, that yeah, yeah, it seemed to me to be a particular relationship between those two people that, are, are, you know, on which you know, some of the, the drama can be, can be pinned. Now, in, in terms of, um, since, you know, you basically made, I guess what would be called the Western, and then the proposition which was made recently was another successful, I guess, Australian Western. Is this, you think, you know, is this going to be a bigger genre or, you know, these are just two lucky films or is, it, is, a lot of, is there a lot of unexplored material that could be used in terms of history that would be, make interesting films, you think? Oh, uh, look, yeah. the, the material that exists, you know, to make interesting films is, is li- almost limitless. Right. And there's never a shortage of it. It's how you do it. It's, you know, it's how you do it that makes an interesting film or not. Because you know, equally, some very bad films being made with very good material. But you know, with quite slight material, you can make you know, 
have the interesting films. But, you know, so, yeah, look, there's no genre, I don't think, happening in this area, but, but you know. Well, the Australian genre I, I thought of as more, like, is brighter, especially the color schemes that you, that you used and, and what was in the proposition. It, it was very similar in that, but I assume that's just because of where it was shot, not necessarily color palette decision. What informed Alexandra's project? Was it, you know, a okay. watching Oleana or something, or something mammoth? No, no, it, what informed it was really a way of making a film, mm-hmm. really. I'd thought some years before of making a really, really low-budget film, really sort of like a handmade film, right. where, where, where I'm, I'm deeply, and really make it very low-budget, but really have to shoot in 35, because otherwise it's not a film, you know, it's not a movie, and, and if it is shot in 35, then people will take it seriously. And, and I came across this idea of, look, you know, if you shoot some of it on video, I don't like that, I don't like video shooting and converting to film, but if you then screen it on a television set and film the television set, then your shooting ratio, the amount of film stock that you use in shooting the stuff off the television set is extremely low. Mm-hmm. It's one to one, okay? And so if you shoot half your film this way, then, then you, you, know, you can shoot it really with very little amount of stock. And, and, and so I, I'd already started to collect old short ends and stuff like that to shoot with. Bits and pieces left over from other shoots. And so, uh, yeah, it was an idea to shoot a film in this way, incredibly cheaply. And so then you, then you start to ask questions. Okay, well, what's on the television set and who's watching it and why? Okay, because then, then you have to construct a film around this. Right. You know, somebody's watching a television set. Well, how do, how do you make that interesting? And so for me, the first image that I had, and I don't know why it was that image, but this was years before I, you know, like five years before, before I actually ended up making it, the image was simply a woman talking to a video camera. Mm-hmm. It just occurred to me, a woman talking to a video camera. Now that image is not in the film, although in a way it is, right. you know. And then, and then I start to ask questions, you know. Who is this woman? Why is she talking to the video camera? Now, look, at that stage, it could still have been a comedy mm-hmm. because she might have been, you know, a stand-up comedian and she's rehearsing. You know, that's possible. So it would turn into a comedy. But, you know, it seemed more interesting to me that it was darker than that, you know, that, that she's, she's putting something down on, 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 on this video camera that has some weight, some gravitas, you know, some drama. And so, it, it develops on from from that. You ask those questions, okay, who is she? Well, in the end, I think she's an unhappy woman. That's more interesting to me than if she's a happy woman. Now, why is she unhappy? Okay, well, why are most people unhappy? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you start to form it. And so that's that's really where, truly where it came from. Now, do you personally view it as feminist or anti-feminist in the way that it shows that a woman, you know, who didn't tell her husband any of these things has gone too far, or or do you have a personal view on on how you read it? Because it's obviously can okay. any number of it, ways. It's it's to me more feminist than it's not, mm-hmm. in that I look. I sympathise with both my characters. I have compassion for both of them. I care about both of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you know, in terms of her, and you know, that contra- each of the two characters is controversial in different ways for audiences, but she's quite controversial more so than, than, than him, I think, even. But for 
to do it this way in terms of who she was and the situation she was in and what she'd been through. She had to do it this way, otherwise she couldn't have been able to do it. Okay, so I had that level of, of sympathy for her. People say she's mad. I don't think she is. She would never, you know, and, and I knew that there would be parts of the audience that would judge her terribly and there would be parts of the audience that would judge him terribly. I judge neither of them. They're both imperfect people who've managed to fuck up their lives. Right. You know, but, you know, inevitably, if you paint that with any sort of authenticity, people are going to judge. You know, not everybody judges the same way because, you know, the audience is so deeply divided. Yeah. Um, I, was, yeah I was trying to figure out, like, which feminist side perhaps informed it. I have no idea if somebody like Andrea Dworkin has crossed over to Australia. I doubt it, but she she's a... a do you know who that is? No. Uh, she's a very famous, now dead feminist who suggested that um, anytime a woman has sex with a man, it's rape, no matter what the situation. So she was, you know, taking the... I don't know, the polar opposite of what might, you know, someone might think of, you know, versus a prostitute or something. And so it was uh, watching it. I, you know, you kept your mind kept moving. Like, well, who, who, it's not just whose side am I on? Is it? Is that a fear that you've had before? Like, oh my God, you know, my lover is not, you know, I'm not listening to them well enough, and this might happen. Well, obviously not to this degree, but <laughs> I would hope not. Um, um, oh gee. Look, it's it's. Uh, I guess it, the, the the politics of the sexuality in it are uh, a combination of everything that I've experienced in my life. But when I say that, I don't just mean my own personal domestic life. But I mean what I've read, what I've heard other people talk about, what I've heard, you know, friends, you know, the prop problems and, and situations they've been in and, and so on. And so there's this sort of amalgam of all of that in a way is at the back of it there somewhere without it being very direct. Because in the end, when you start to write it, as I say, I have, you know, I like both my characters. You know, I don't really want, want it. And, and, and in a way, there's a bit of me in both of them, in a way, as there, as there is, you know, bit of me in just about every character I ever write. But mostly what happens is that the, 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 the thing gets formed through problem solving, okay? Because mm -hmm. I, I have a problem, you know, I've got, I've got to create tension. I'd like watching a TV screen. I mean, that's, you know, hey, it's not going to work. Yes, it can. Okay, how do I do it? Okay, and then you start to solve problems. And, and so, you know, you have, I had a problem, for example, where it was taking too long to get to the dramatic bits. And, and I'd written her whole... You know, I was in the process of writing her whole tape, in a sense. And then I thought, what the fuck, you know, it's just taking too long. It's just boring. But, but she wouldn't jump into this other stuff. It, she, it, she has to say all this stuff. And then I thought, OK, well, you know, what, what would he do about that? You know, and in the end, that's where you know, he, he, he goes fast forward. Okay? And what he does, he, he goes fast forward over a whole lot of stuff that I'd written. Right. Okay? And that was a solution to a problem. Now, that forms then something about his character, and that forms then, that then, then feeds back into other stuff, and you know, go back and change different stuff before and after. And, you know, and so most of this writing stuff is, is ultimately it's problem solving. Why does this happen here? And, you know, okay. But, but the, the, the sexual politics of it is, is you know, that's, 
Yeah, that's what's really interesting. It gets partly formed by that process, partly formed by who I am, partly formed by how do you get drama into this, uh, partly formed by you know, my desire not to judge my characters, but I need this this level of of drama in order to make you know, and and the whole thing ultimately becomes a synthesis of of all those things. In uh, Ten Canoes. There's a number of things that I, I noted, but uh, first, as obviously a joke, is do Australian filmmakers with you and uh, Mel Gibson's Apocalypto have, are, are you guys running a motif on fart jokes in movies about ancient tribes? I have not seen Apocalypto, okay. nor have I read the script beforehand. <laughs> I'm kidding. It, it starts off, it, it's, for something so serious, it, it has a surprising number of poop jokes. Uh, Apocalypto? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Look, in, in this particular case, look, it's, it's, it's more for the Australian audience than for anybody mm-hmm. in the sense that this sort of stuff is always treated so reverentially. Right. And, and it's, it, it isn't, and it shouldn't be, and they didn't want it to be, and they're not like that. Right. And so, in a sense, you, you, you set it up in such a way that it deflates all of that right up front. And then people know they have permission to laugh. Because in Australia, we know the indigenous question, you know, people don't think they have permission to laugh. Of course they do. So you've got to make sure that they have permission. And I guess that got, kind of got into the side question that I had, which was usually in, the, in films made about foreign cultures and most, you know, most filmmakers do, they, there's either, you get like the last wave, it's either like the white savior, or it's sort of a crime film like Chan of Jimmy Blacksmith. But this seemed to be a little more of like, well, at least started as a lighter slice of life and a gentle tale, which seemed less condescending than the has to be. Like, while it's taken less seriously, it's less condescending. And then, you, do you did you is that one way do you manage to avoid saying, "Oh, well, you're not part of these part of this tribe. How how do you, how dare you make a film about them?" Is that one of those ways? Well, uh, I, I had look. People can say what they like about that sort of stuff, and I don't care because I know what the truth, what the story is. You know. The story is they asked me to come up and make a film with them. And I said, well, what do you want to do? Okay, so it's their film. This is what they wanted to do. And okay, I helped form it. And, you know, they said, look, you know, you do this bit and just do it, you know. I said, okay, well, what do you want here? What do you want there? What do you, do you want this in here? I know, it's got to have this and that. Okay, so I know what the story is. And so people can say what they like, whether it should have been me or not. They wanted to achieve certain things out of it, and it was my job to, to make sure that those things were achieved. And one of those things is, you know, that it wasn't condescending that way. And, and, and one of the things is, you know, that, that, you know, you go, you penetrate behind the facade and see real people, real characters that, you can engage with instead of the other. Quickly to a question about Dr. Plunk, which is that kind of film, which is obviously shot, I would assume, for fun, is that, is it only fun if it becomes not so much of an effort to make? Like, you know, you're you're trying to enjoy the... The the process at times of shooting Dr. Plunk is very difficult. Mm -hmm. It's not just fun. If it's just fun, you're doing something wrong. Right. Okay? It, it was a very serious process of trying to make it work. There's not to say we, there weren't times when it was fun. But, you know, it's much more important for it to look like it was fun than for it to be fun at the time. Right. And so it was a lot of hard work. You know, it was 
taken seriously from the beginning to do it seriously and do it well, but for it to be a process that we could enjoy. I think fun is then, you know, is, is almost the wrong word. Well, I was, I wrote enjoyment on my list, but I wanted, you know, it. it, it yeah, 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 but, 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 you know, it's meant to be a fun film. Mm -hmm. But every film that I do, I try and find a way to make the process rewarding. Yeah, and rewarding can be, you know, enjoy or just be rewarding. You know, like Ten Kilos was, was not a lot of fun in the making of it. Hard work, hard work, hard work, and very, very difficult circumstances, but it was about ultimately extremely 